Well, as the kids are leaving, uh, I have a question for you, but the question is based on blessing, and the word blessed by God means God's favor rests upon us internally, even as outward circumstances might not look, look good. But internally, we're blessed. So how many would like to be blessed by God? Raise your hand. Yeah, we all would, I think. Well, we can learn more about what blessings look like, specifically from the Beatitudes, You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. But then we come down to verse 10, it said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. How many want to be blessed? Still. (laughs) Want to be persecuted and insulted and... Well, um, that is, uh, that's God's view of blessing. It seems to be a paradox. Um, not that anyone wants to experience suffering or persecution or insult, but Jesus reminds us on multiple occasions that persecution and opposition would be commonplace, should be expected if we're followers of Christ. In Mark chapter 10, Peter once declared to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you, Jesus. To which Jesus responded, truly I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive hundred times as much in this present age. We think, yeah, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, praise God. But then there's this parenthetical statement along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life along with persecutions. We tend to overlook that phrase, don't we? Lynn and I received this magazine um, this past week from Voice of the Martyrs, as we do every month. And on the cover was a man named Ibrahim, who was a Somalian Christian. And it says he persevered through persecution to plant 23 churches in Kenya and Somalia. Ibrahim was the first ethnic Somalian Christian in Kenya. He was an Islamic evangelist spreading the message of Muhammad when he started comparing the Quran to the Bible after hearing a missionary speak about Moses and the Exodus. He was thinking this missionary was a Muslim reading from the Quran, and as he listened intently, he noticed some discrepancies. And so he later learned this was a Christian missionary, and so he compared the Bible account to the Quran account, and he discovered that the Bible account came first. He also found the truth of the Bible um, to be truthful, but inconsistencies in the Quran. Later on, one of his young converts named Abdi, he came to Christ, and he found compelling evidence in the Bible again, as opposed to the Quran. For example, he read extensively about the life of Jesus in the Bible. And he read that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. And he knew this about his leader, his former leader, about Muhammad, who said um, he wasn't sure whether he'd go to heaven or hell, nor was he sure that his followers would go to heaven or hell. He couldn't give them confirmation or affirmation. 
And so Abdi realized that Muhammad was simply a blind guide and that he didn't want to follow a blind guide throughout life. And so he gave his life to Christ as well. Well, getting back to the older guy, Ibrahim, after coming to Christ, he was transformed, radically transformed by the joy of knowing the one true living God. In fact, he was so transformed that he wanted to be rebaptized again, but this time much more publicly. He invited all the town's people, his clan's uh, men to come and women to come, along with 20 Muslim sheiks. He also invited the police to escort him as well, just in case. See, he had this burning passion to share the joy of the Lord with his people. But as a result, Ibrahim experienced great persecution. He was literally dumped by his family. His wife remained with him, but every time for the next year that his wife saw Ibrahim, she broke down and wept because of this this, um, leaving the faith, if you will. In fact, uh, the, the wife was later taken away after about a year. For the next 11 years, she was removed from Ibrahim, um, and she was taken in by relatives. And so Ibrahim didn't see his wife for 11 years, and then she passed away without him ever reuniting with his wife. Muslim clansmen tried to bribe Ibrahim by offering him 400 cows, 200 camels, and large amounts of land if he would simply renounce Christ. He had been shot, stoned, arrested, and had witnessed the murder of many of his young converts, including Abdi. Life became very painful and unbearable for Ibrahim. But many of the converts from the churches that he had planted would come to support him, encourage him, pray with him. Literally, he experienced 100 times the brothers and sisters and family in Christ. And he constantly read God's word to find strength through his difficult times. But throughout it all, during his next 30, 40 years, he planted 23 churches, and the Lord used him to win many to Christ throughout the persecution. Well, as American believers, what should be our top priority? Should it be living a comfortable life, a safe life, pain-free life, or should it be growing and strengthening the church of Christ? And I think you know the answer, but I know through many conversations, from many things I read on the internet, even from brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems to me that our number priority as Americans would be for a safe and comfortable America, for our family, for our grandkids, and we should want that, but, but that seems to be our highest priority as opposed to strengthening the church of Christ, which led me to this article that I read a few weeks ago, comes from a Christian professor from uh, Singapore named Lile Saya and his team, and it was published in Christianity Today magazine. What they did was they studied 166 countries in a 10-year period from 2010 to 2020, and they asked this question, why is Christianity and the Church of Christ growing in some countries and declining in other countries? And they came up with three consistencies, three P words. Pluralism, um, privilege, and persecution. 
And all three of these words they discovered would be paradoxes to what we would desire. Almost the opposites. The paradox of pluralism. Many believe the best way for Christianity to thrive is to shut out all other religious influences from, our, from the country. We just want a Christian nation and that's it. However, ironically, historically, history had shown that when Christianity was at its strongest, it was one of many religions in the land, and most time it wasn't dominant. In fact, it was the minority religion of the land. And it seems like capitalism, when Christianity had to compete with other faith traditions on an equal playing field, that's when Christianity grew and thrived, like in the New Testament church. For the first 300 years we read about in the book of Acts, the Christian church thrived, it grew, it expanded, it exploded in growth, yet it existed in a culture of pluralism without having the privilege or having to, and also they had to endure great persecution. The early church exploded, that is, until Constantine became the Roman emperor and he moved the capital to Constantinople, named after himself, And it was at that time that Constantine declared that Rome would be a Christian nation. It would be a Christian world. He made it an edict. And then he appointed Christian leaders into his cabinet, into positions of power. And that was the beginning of the complacency of the church for the next years, hundreds of years. And the corruption in the church as well. We all know that worldly power corrupts. Today, the fastest-growing church populations are in countries where Christianity is in the minority. For example, Malawi, Uganda, Rwanda, Madagascar, Liberia, Congo, places like this, all experiencing revival. Church is growing, yet they're in pluralistic countries. The next paradox that they discovered in this, in this research was the paradox of privilege. Like Constantinople, nine of the ten fastest declining Christian populations in the world today are found to have high levels of Christian support from their government, like in the United States or in the United Kingdom. Christians may exert efforts to influence parts of the culture toward morality and sometimes Uh, Christians in positions like this can really succeed in making for a moral country, but it ends up looking like civil religion as opposed to passionate followers of Christ. Today, nations in Europe, like Sweden, have made Christianity their state religion, and it has been for 100 years. Sweden, in fact, has appointed their king to be the head of the church, and most Swedes would claim Christianity uh, to be their faith and membership in the church to be a, a deal for them. And yet, every weekend, you visit Sweden and you go, or in Europe, and you, vi- you visit these magnificent, wonderful churches, ornate churches, but they're empty. Just a few people sitting there. That, that's why the Covenant Church, this denomination, came into being. Swedes in the 1800s uh, became bored with the state church in the late 1800s. Uh, Lutheranism was the state religion, and everyone was a Lutheran, and yet their faith meant nothing to them. It was dead orthodoxy, and so they became uh, disenchanted with religion, if you will, until the Spirit of God swept through the land through pietism and through the Second Great Awakening, 
And many of these immigrants, when they came overseas after meeting Christ during the Great Awakening, they, they immigrated to the states in places like McPherson and Lindsburg and Salina and in places like Minneapolis uh, in Chicago and Connecticut where my grandfather came uh, from Sweden. And they had this living and thriving personal relationship with Christ. And they, they formed these small groups and they, they read the Bible and said, where is it written? And they studied the Bible and asked, where, what, what does God say about this or this or this? And they asked another question, how goes it with your soul? How is your personal walk with Jesus? Because they had met the living God, not in the state church, but through this spirit revival that swept through the land. And that's how the Covenant Church became established in the United States. They didn't want to return to the state church where, where the Christianity was the state religion, if you will. On the other hand, Christianity in Asian countries have grown twice the rate of the population where Christianity enjoys no special relationship with the state. Similar, we could say similar things about Africa, uh, like Uganda, Rwanda, Liberia, and Congo. They seem to be thriving not because they're supported by the state and the government, but because they're not supported by the state. pastor recently told me if China would want to thwart the incredible Christian growth there, they ought to legalize it in China. So pluralism, privilege, and the third one is the paradox of persecution. Well, we all know that the early church grew and expanded and just penetrated the entire world first 300 years under heavy persecution because Christians were never given the opportunity to become complacent and comfortable. They had to choose daily who they would serve. They had to literally die to themselves daily, I serve the living Christ amidst great persecution. We read in the book, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, we read of the seven churches, two of of which were commended by God, and five were rebuked by Jesus. The two that were commended and lifted up by Jesus were the church of Smyrna, which was the impoverished impoverished church. And the other one was the church of Philadelphia, which was the suffering church. The other five churches were quite comfortable and successful. There was the idolatrous church that got reprimanded by Jesus. Idolatrous church of Ephesus and the compromising church of Pergamum and the tolerant church of Thyatira and the outwardly successful church of Sardis and the prosperous yet lukewarm church of Laodicea. They, They got rebuked by Jesus. I wonder where the church in America would fit in with this list. In China, the church had gone, had to go underground in the Cultural Revolution between 1966 and 1976 under the reign of dictatorship of Mao Zedong, or Mao Zedong. His goal was to preserve communism in Russia by waging war against all the perceived enemies, especially Christianity. And yet Chinese believers were fined and imprisoned and tortured and local regulations prohibited religious gatherings like we're doing this morning. Yet despite the government oppression, spiritual revival broke out during those years, which became the largest revival in the history of the church. Over 50 million believers gave their allegiance to this invisible kingdom, even as the visible kingdom 
made them suffer for it. Today, there's upwards of like 20,000 coming to Christ daily in countries like China. And we see similar patterns in the Middle East today and in Africa. Isn't that what Jesus wants for revival in our land, for our church to become stronger? Isn't that his top priority? Is that what we're aiming for here as Americans? Are we aiming for that or are we wanting to be comfortable? Are we wanting to be safe? Are we wanting... And so that's the paradox. That's the tension that I feel because I want a safe country for kids and grandkids and I want to be comfortable. I don't want persecution. Who does? But our top priority should be how can our church strengthen? Well, I'm not suggesting that we invite persecution to America and say, Lord, bring it on. I'm not suggesting uh, that we stop voting for Christians who run for office or stop praying for our leaders. Uh, I don't think that's the answer. We're commanded to do things like that. What I'm suggesting, though, that if and when we experience what Jesus promised would happen on many occasions, namely that we would be hated because we follow Jesus at times, um, that we should not fear, and here's the point, we shouldn't fear and we shouldn't panic and we shouldn't fight and we shouldn't retaliate. We should rather respond as Jesus responded. After all, when Jesus was walking on the earth and the Apostle Paul, it was far worse for believers back then. They were crucifying Christians on the side of the road if you were walked down the streets. There was massive persecution. Well, how did Jesus respond? He said, in Matthew, Mark chapter 13, he said, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues, which is the religious establishment, by the way. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, which is a political establishment. And the gospel must be first preached to all nations. Brother will betray, uh, betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Why will we stand potentially before synagogues, religious leaders, and political leaders? We're told in this passage to be his witness, that the souls of this world might become the apostle Paul's of this world, that the Iman Ibrahim might become a pastor and evangelist, Ibrahim, and plant 23 churches. Mark 13, 11, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry, Jesus said beforehand about what you'll say. Just, just say whatever's given to you at that time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So if you're pulled before the political religious leaders because of your faith in Christ, Jesus said, don't worry what you're going to say. And do not worry, do not fear is the most common command in Scripture. Do not fear, I'll be with you, right? And I've always got to share this illustration when I'm talking about things like this. Ron Boyd McMillan, he worked 25 years with persecuted peoples. And this is what he said. He said, of 20, over 20 years of reporting on the suffering church, I've interviewed literally hundreds and hundreds of Christians who thought they were going to die for their faith. All of them 
and I really do mean all of them, exhibited two amazing characteristics. First, they experienced unspeakable peace and joy in the midst of the pain as they began to feel that death was drawing near. And second, they were as surprised as anyone that they were not afraid of death at that time. I'm thinking, man, I'd be freaking out, like, ah! But, but the Holy Spirit's real. Jesus meets us in our weakness. He will provide his presence for us. Do not worry what you'll say. Do not worry even how you'll feel. I read this statement, which seems to describe our current situation today. It says, we have fallen upon evil times, and the world has waxed very old and wicked. Politics are very corrupt. Children are no longer respectful to their parents. And we think, yep, that describes us. However, these despairing words weren't posted for the first time on Facebook last week. Archaeologists found them chiseled onto a stone from ancient Chaldea that dates to 3,800 before Christ, B.C. We're not living in unique times. It's been like this for followers of Yahweh since the beginning of history, and God still sits on the throne. He says, my church will continue to grow until I return. I will strengthen my people until I return. We've been there before. Don't be caught off. He's not caught off guard by our hard times. So as believers, claiming one's freedom from fear is central to our faith. For example, in China today, when when authorities threaten house church leaders with confiscation of their property, they reply, if you want this firm, you'll need to talk to Jesus about that as I've given it to him. But if you do take it, I'm free to trust God for my daily bread. Freedom. When Chinese Christians are threatened with torture, they claim, well, I'm free to trust God for my healing. When they're imprisoned, they proclaim that they are free to share their faith with other prisoners then. When Chinese believers are told that they'll be killed, they state then they will be free to be with Jesus forevermore. Greg Laurie, pastor, wrote this this past week in his blog. He said, we have two choices when persecution comes. We can either look up or we can freak out. Jesus said, now when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. We shouldn't be looking for the Antichrist and all the evil and all the... ah. We should be looking up to Jesus Christ. That's where our focus should be right now. And that's where our hope is. When someone suggested to Abraham, who is now in his 80s, that he has had to endure a lot of suffering during his lifetime, he quietly responds, not nearly enough compared to what Christ's suffering for me was. So what's our reward for enduring? Jesus said in Mark 10, 29, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Our reward is eternal life in the future, but it's also 
hundred times in this life. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around us. And that's what Ibrahim, uh, who, who gathered around him and who he gathered around during the 23 churches that he planted. So let me ask you this in conclusion. Picture yourself standing next to Ibrahim on the day, judgment day, you know, the judgment seat of Christ, where it's really an awards assembly. If you're an athlete, there's always awards assemblies and, or whatever, musicians, you know, at the end of the school year. Well, that's what the judgment seat of Christ is. We're going to stand before there to receive our rewards. Picture yourself standing right next to Ibrahim. And Ibrahim, um, Jesus addresses him first, says, Ibrahim, welcome. Uh, tell me about your life. Well, Lord, it was a joy and privilege to serve you all these years, to plant churches, to share the saving message of the gospel with the lost, uh, for, to uh, win those who are walking in darkness, those who are deceived by the lies of the enemy. It was my joy, Jesus, to suffer for you, that others may come to know you. And Jesus will respond, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on into your eternal inheritance. And then it's your turn, or it's my turn. Uh, Lord, it was a joy coming to know you. Um, I went to church every now and then, and, um, and you know, I, and to suffer for you for the sake of winning the lost. My question is, up to this point in your life, have you suffered for the gospel? Have I? By all the complaining that I'm hearing these days, it feels like we're suffering an incredible amount. But are we, as we stand next to Ibrahim? What is our attitude when someone causes us pain or inconvenience or heartache? Do we count ourselves blessed or do we complain? Do we retaliate against those evil enemies, even in our community? Do we fight for our rights against the very people who we are called to win? Mark 5, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Again, I ask, how many want to be blessed by God? Amen. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we know that we are walking against the tide of this world. We know that in our heads, and we sometimes experience it in our lives as well. And so, Lord, may we consider ourselves blessed. May we be people who praise you and rejoice even when things are against us. May we be light in the darkness. May we even shine even brighter the darker this world gets because we have hope that the world does not have. Forgive us, Lord, for our complaining and for our arguing and for our sticking up for our rights rather than dying to our rights. Lord, that doesn't mean we don't live according to the truth and proclaim the truth, but forgive our attitudes, Lord, our attitudes of retaliation. And Lord, may we be Christ-like. May we walk as you did and as you taught your disciples to, Lord, that people will see the difference. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.